you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Hey guys, thanks for being with us on the podcast. This week, I thought I'd try something new. You know, we took a little hiatus from recording guests, and I'm just starting to record again. I've got a whole bunch of exciting guests coming up that uh, you definitely are not going to want to miss. But for this particular episode, you know, I started getting sort of reminiscent and sentimental about my two decades in the restaurant business. And it's quite an interesting story of knowing absolutely nothing about restaurants to building super successful, high volume, you know, high profit restaurants and selling those properties and then starting restaurant rock stars and then pivoting uh, completely and getting back into the restaurant business, buying a restaurant in 2019 and then going through all the same challenges over the past year that you've gone through during the COVID pandemic. And now it's like we've completely pivoted that concept because we've been forced to. So there's a lot of key learnings in that. And now, you know, I'll be doing an upcoming recording on, you know, what where we've been with that restaurant, everything we've done, everything we've run into, and then what our exit strategy is for the future. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I believe there's a lot of key learnings in here. I'm going to talk all about, you know, what I think the magic dust of really successful restaurants is and what any restaurant operator really needs to know to take a fresh look at their operation, you know, as if they're seeing it for the first time and getting passionate about it all over again. If you've been fortunate to make it through the pandemic so far through, you know, PPP funds and now the new Restaurant Revitalization Act, now it's time to dig deep, get resourceful, get creative and get that passion back for really building a strong brand and moving past this thing and being stronger than ever before. So that's what this episode is about. Thanks for tuning in. Stay with us. Hey guys, for this episode of the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, I thought I'd reflect on my 23-year career in starting and owning restaurants. You know, it's sort of a trip down memory lane and I think there's lots of key learnings here. But many of you don't know my story. If you were to go back in time over two decades, 23 years ago or so, I started my very first restaurant with no restaurant experience. The saving grace was I had a business degree from a top business school, so I knew how to run a business. But again, I didn't know anything about the restaurant business. And I would call it the school of hard knocks, you know. I was originally looking for a million dollar loan from the banks to start my restaurant, which sounds crazy and it kind of is. And here's how that went. You know, I was on a job interview at a ski resort in Maine. I was looking for a marketing career and I was interviewing for this job over the course of a couple of months and they kept bringing me back for more and more interviews. And I just saw an opportunity in this really small, sleepy town in Maine that just happened to have a huge ski resort there where, you know, half a million people would come through in the wintertime. And so I saw this opportunity because the town really wasn't developed. There wasn't a lot of restaurants or bars or retail shops or condominiums. And all of a sudden, this idea hit because I had gone to Europe numerous times. I had lived in Italy. I was really enamored with wood-fired brick oven pizza that you literally find at every street corner in Italy. Real Italian Neapolitan pizza. Very few people know that, you know, the birthplace of pizza and pizza really was invented in Naples, Italy. And there's a special way of making pizza 
in Naples. And there's time-honored secrets, and this is passed down from families from generation to generation, and each different restaurant has its own secrets. And I later actually traveled to Naples, Italy, after I had started my first place. I was reading a magazine article in one of those foodie magazines about the origins of pizza. And I read that the actual restaurant that created pizza, that actually invented it sometime in the late 1700s, and we're talking centuries ago, I mean, that's how old pizza is, um, still exists. And it's been passed down from generation to generation. And I just thought, I've got to go there because, you know, I have a pizza restaurant. I'm trying to do wood-fired brick oven pizza. I want it to be authentic and original in every way. And as I, you know, I mentioned that I lived in Italy, I had very basic Italian speaking skills. Well, I traveled to Naples and I tracked this place down and I walked in the door. And again, descendants of the original founders are still at work making pizza. And in my very basic Italian, I was able to explain to them that I had this pizzeria in Maine and I really wanted to do things the old style, real Neapolitan way. And they invited me back behind the counter. They had a wood-fired pizza oven. And in Italy, the ovens are absolutely beautiful. They're works of art. They're sculptures, actually, with beautiful tile work. And the oven is visible to every restaurant customer. And you can see the fire blazing. And, you know, that's exactly what inspired me. And I had to do the very same thing at my place in America. Well, anyway, I was invited back and I spent hours behind the counter and they taught me the secrets to real Neapolitan pizza. And that later became a marketing hook of mine. I printed that story on all my pizza boxes and in my menus and no one else could say that they actually traveled to Naples and actually learned how to make pizza in the actual restaurant where pizza was first invented. So that became a hook. You know, marketing is so important in restaurants and you really need to differentiate yourself from your competition and you simply can't have too many hooks. Well, more on that later. I don't want to get off track. So anyway, here we are back in America. I'm starting my very first restaurant and I don't know the very first thing about it, but I'm on this job interview. I suddenly see opportunity and I go back to the college where I got a degree because I didn't own a computer, you know? And so I started writing this business plan and it was all inspiring because there was a piece of property for sale in this small town in Maine. It was actually 10 acres of land in a great location, literally on the way to the ski resort where all the traffic was going to be. And I suddenly saw myself, you know, buying that land, building this building, creating this authentic Neapolitan, you know, honoring the Naples tradition of making pizza and all that kind of stuff. And all this went into the business plan, but I needed a million dollars to buy 10 acres of land and build a building and outfit it with equipment. You see where that's going. So as you can imagine, I then took this business plan to commercial banks all over New England. And I must have had 10 or 12 different you know, appointments speaking to these commercial lenders. And I had this business plan and I, had, I was all fired up with my idea. And as you can imagine, the very first question was, so how many bars or restaurants have you ever owned or managed before? And the answer was always, well, I've never been in the restaurant business. I really, you know, I've never owned or managed a restaurant, but I got a great idea. Read the business plan. And they all just sort of shut, you know, shuffled me out of the office and said, you know, see you later. Thank you very much. Well, I got lucky. After about the 12th or 15th appointment with banks, I actually came across a vice president of lending for a very large bank, New England Regional Bank at that time. 
And this particular loan officer skied this ski resort just about every weekend. And he absolutely knew the opportunity. He's like, you're absolutely right. You know, that place needs a great restaurant. There's only a handful of places and the food is awful and the service is awful. And, you know, that place really needs everything. And yes, you got a great business plan and you've got a business degree. Do I think you can run a business? Yes, I do. Am I going to give you a million dollars? No, I can't. But if you scale this project way, way back, I might be able to get you $150,000. Whoa, put the brakes on, right? So obviously you can't buy land and build a building and fill it with equipment and start a restaurant for $150,000. So you start looking for leases. And there are very few leases in this particular small town. And the ones that were available, there were two that I looked at, very expensive. The locations were okay, but one was in a brand new building that didn't even have any fit-ups. It had no plumbing. It had no electricity. I would have to do all that. And of course, when you lose or you know leave a lease, you can't take all that stuff with you, but that's your expense. So that was going to be very expensive. They also had common area maintenance charges on top of the monthly rent. I ran the numbers and none of it made sense. But interestingly, I was so intrigued because this new building was in a new development that was supposed to be a pedestrian shopping mall with outdoor, you know, courtyards and cobblestone streets and gas street lamps and a movie theater and a hotel at the end of the street and anchor stores like famous stores like L.L. Bean here in Maine is huge that was supposed to go in. Well, it's a good thing I didn't take that space because none of that development ever happened. The movie theater happened, nothing else happened. And for decades, literally to this day, it's still not a fully developed project. So word to the wise there. Just because something looks good on paper or they promise you a good game, oh, this is going to happen and that's going to happen, not necessarily true. I almost learned that the hard way. So I ended up in a space on the wrong side of the railroad track, six miles away from the ski resort that had parking issues, had a leaking roof, had visibility issues. And there were literally four failed restaurants in that space before I got there. And I had to overcome this stigma. And I walked in the front door and the space was disjointed. There was a huge wall in front of you where a host podium should be. And you could walk down this long hallway to the left or down this long hallway to the right. And I'm thinking, none of this is going to work. But we ended up taking the space, negotiating a decent lease for three years and knocking walls down building our wood-fired brick oven that was going to be right in the middle of the dining room floor because I clearly saw that as a marketing hook. I wanted it to be as authentic to Italy as possible. We built a beautiful brick oven. I had to hire a, a very talented mason to create this because an oven, you know, it's got to be fire brick. It's got to be fireproof. It's got to have a convection concept, which is basically a dome on the inside of the oven that, you know, transmits the fire around and cooks all the pizzas in an even uniform manner. All this I had to learn, you know, but it was an amazing journey. But the best part about this place, I mentioned there were four failed restaurants. There was lots of equipment in place that was going to save me money, things I didn't have to buy or source. There was a walk-in cooler. There was a dishwasher. There was a, a range hood. There were, you know, some, there was some line, there were, I think there was a grill on the line, some very basic stuff was there, but very important things that saved me money. There were tables there, no chairs, but plenty of tables. That saved money. That was great. So I had a custom, an artist custom make these chairs that were beautiful recreations of chairs that I had seen in Switzerland. You know, they had the little heart-shaped cutouts in the back. I wanted to create this romance because I knew that ambiance was going to be very important to this restaurant getting it started. So it was really about food, service, and ambiance. Now here's an interesting 
disgusting thing. I didn't know the first thing. I was not a chef. I was not a cook. I knew I wanted pizzas, but I needed someone to develop the dough recipe, the pizza recipes. I wanted everything to be homemade from scratch. We wanted to make our own dough. We wanted to make our own sauces. We wanted to use the finest ingredients because that's what they do in Italy, right? So I thought that I needed a full-blown chef. So here's where it gets interesting. I answered an ad. There was an ad in the Boston Globe newspaper for a seasonal chef on the island of Nantucket who was looking for a winter gig. And it sounded good. So I called the guy up and I interviewed him over the phone and he talked a good game. And I talked to him on a second interview. So he finally invites me over to the island of Nantucket. And so, you know, I had a business partner at the time. And the two of us went over there to interview the chef. Well, he met us at the ferry. And as soon as we got off the boat, we're walking through town and everybody knows this guy. Everyone's like, hey, Jerry, how are you, Jerry? He was like the mayor of Nantucket. It was unbelievable. So that obviously built credibility in our minds. It's like everybody likes this guy. He's very popular. He walks us into the seasonal restaurant that he's shutting down. He didn't own it, but he was, you know, he was the chef there. And the place was shutting down for the end of the summer. But he walked us into the kitchen, showed us around, then he sat us down and he started to prepare amazing food and this dish after this dish after this dish. He was obviously a very talented chef and the food just kind of knocked our socks off. So we were very intrigued at this point. So we're like, okay, Jerry, why don't you take a trip up to Maine and see our location and see our concept and see what we're doing and see if the fit works for you. So he comes up to Maine the next weekend and he looks around. He's immediately in the kitchen. He's designing the layout of all the equipment saying, okay, you've got this. That's great. You're going to need this. And he starts putting the equipment list together and doing all this kind of preliminary work. And he stays there all weekend. And again, he's cooking us breakfast, lunch, and dinner, three meals. And the food is incredible. So we decided this is our guy. And we hired him. We wrote up a contract. We, we agreed on a salary. And now he's under contract for us. He's our chef. Okay, so now he goes back to Nantucket, he wraps everything up, and now he comes up one more time to Maine, he continues to work for us, he's on salary, and then I didn't see him for a week or two, and now I've got this job. I forgot to tell you that I actually took the job at the ski resort, and my business partner's, you know, starting this restaurant, and after work, I would come down every night and work till, you know, God, two in the morning. It was crazy, my hours back then, but I would do things after hours. She would do things during the day, so I'm at work one day in the marketing department at this big ski resort. And I get a phone call from my partner and she says, oh, Jerry's at a restaurant auction in the state of New York. And he says he found all the equipment that we need for pennies on the dollar. It's a restaurant foreclosure, you know, it went out of business, the bank foreclosed, whatever. And we needed this and we needed that. And he's going to, you know, rent a U-Haul truck. He's going to bid on all this stuff. He's going to bring it up this weekend. You know, we just have to wire him a check for $40,000. Suddenly, I, I, you know, that put the brakes on me right away. I'm like, something doesn't sound right. One, I didn't know he was going to be at an auction. And two, it's like $40,000. You're just going to wire this person that we just met $40,000. And she's like, we're opening this restaurant in like two weeks. Maybe it was three weeks, but you know what I'm saying. What are we going to do? It's like, we haven't found the stuff. We need it. He found it. He's going to bring the truck up, blah, blah, blah. So under duress, I was under a deadline at work and I'm thinking, yeah, whatever. So we wrote this guy 40,000. We wired it to him, actually. We wired it to some bank somewhere in New York. And then we waited for the U-Haul truck to show up that weekend. And the truck never showed up. And Jerry didn't answer his phone and we never heard from him. Actually, we never heard from him again. So my partner and I went to New York where 
supposedly this bank was where the money was wired and we contacted the FBI because it was an out-of-state crime and we tracked down his parents in Rhode Island and we sat down in their living room, elderly people, as tears are streaming down their faces as yet again their son, who was a professional con man, took yet another restaurant for a lot of money, including all his family members. And they had all disowned him and he had been in jail and all this kind of stuff. We never got our $40,000. We had a very difficult decision to make. We had borrowed $150,000 from this bank, and we just lost $40,000 of our startup money before we even opened the doors to our place. And what a, you know, what a come to decision making you have to do. You, you got to sleep on it, right? And so we woke up the next morning and we had two choices. We could either pay back the 110000 to the bank and owe them forty and have nothing to show for it or somehow make a restaurant work with $40,000 less than we really needed. Well, that was the only decision to make and we moved forward. So we renovated that space and we turned it into this, you know, the Swiss chalet ambiance on a shoestring budget with 40000 less than we needed. But like I said, there was equipment in place. We had furniture and we hired a consultant to put the menu together. And then the consultant, after doing all this great work and creating really amazing dough recipes and, and pizza recipes and all this kind of stuff. He had a regular gig to go back to, but he knew somebody, you know, it's a network out there, right? You got a network. Well, he knew a chef that was looking for a gig that had extensive experience. And so we hired this person and we got into business. Well, we were an overnight success because like I mentioned earlier, this town had very few restaurants and the ones that were there really had no ambiance. The food was average. The service was lackluster. And we focused on all of those things. I trained my staff in the basics of hospitality, which is so important. It's the foundation of this business, isn't it? Hospitality is absent when something happens to your customer. Hospitality is present when something happens for your customer. It's very simple, but every single person that worked for me understood what that meant. And we wanted to treat every customer like the most important customer in the place, like a VIP, even if they were first-time visitors. And face it, folks, you get first-time visitors in your restaurant all the time, but you need to treat everyone like they're a regular, like they're the most important person, like an old friend. And that was the basics of our hospitality. And then I trained people how to serve and sell. Suggestive selling is so important. So many restaurants that I visit pre-COVID, and now I'm starting to visit restaurants again post-COVID, and order takers are the rule of the day, aren't they? Take the order, deliver the food, bring the check. That's an average experience. And I always wanted to offer my customers extraordinary experiences. That's the difference. So I created this training system called Sales Stars, and it all became you know, foundational, the hospitality thing. I wanted to choreograph the service between my entire front of house team and the back of the house. I wanted the hosts, the bussers, the servers, the bartenders, everyone to be able to suggest and sell through product knowledge, to make suggestions, not just do the basics of their job, not just greet people at the door, give them a menu, seat them at a table, not just having bussers clear the tables, you know, the plates and wipe the tables down. No, I wanted everyone to be able to train to become a server and a bartender. I wanted them to understand hospitality and I wanted them to know the menus inside and out so that they could recognize opportunities at the table, anticipate customers' needs, 
and make suggestions that translated into great service and increased sales. And that's exactly what we did. It was awesome. I watched my business double year after year after year just based on that training system. And then pre-shifts were so important. I believe that training happens every single day. And I'm not talking about 20 minutes or a half an hour. I'm talking about five or 10 minutes gathering the staff together and having a strategy, a game plan, a message, a theme, you know, something that they can take with them to the tables so that the guests have a great great experience and feel as though they are the most important customer. So that's really what it was all about. I had a hard time with labor in the beginning. Like everyone is struggling with the labor shortage right now. I get it. I had a hard time with labor, just like anyone. You know why? There was a new hotel being built in this town and it was going to serve obviously the ski resort, but they needed to hire hundreds of people in this local community. And I'm thinking to myself, how am I possibly going to find enough staff to open the doors to this restaurant when the hotel is going to take hundreds of people? So I instantly knew it wasn't about hiring. It was about recruiting. Now, I believe there are three types of employees in any business, including restaurants. I call that the A, B, and Cs. Okay. Now the A team goes without saying, right? The A's, you wish you had 20 more of these people. They're reliable. They have great personalities, right? They're friendly. They're attentive. They make friends with their customers every day. They have experience. They're polished. You know, they bring customers back into a restaurant. The B team have all those same attributes, the great personalities. They're reliable. They take initiative. They really care about serving the public. The only difference is they lack a little polish, a little experience. Maybe they've never worked in a restaurant before. So I'll hire a hundred of those people all day long because we train for experience. We can't train for personality. And I always thought that personality and approach was more important. So those are the A's and the B's. The C team, this may sound harsh, but I eliminated the C's right off the bat. If there was a C player that didn't adapt to our training, that just didn't fit the restaurant because they were just showing up for a paycheck, they didn't really care about serving the public. They didn't care about service, which was so important. You know, they were always out back having a smoke. They're showing up late. They were unreliable. We called it weeding the garden. We got rid of those people. What I did instead was I went to my A players. And even if I had a B player, but again, I'm starting my first restaurant. I had an A player. And I said, you know what? Do you know anyone who might not be happy in their job, that has a great personality, that you're friendly with, that you think might fit what we're trying to do here? Well, if you could bring me those people, I'll pay you $100 for anyone that you bring in the door, okay? And if that person lasts for three months and does a great job, meets their job description, goes above and beyond, displays the great personality, and really shows the potential, I'm going to pay that person $300 because I knew back then turnover was going to cost a lot of money. I understand that it's like $3,000 or more today to hire someone, get them up to speed in the job, and then they either quit, you fire them, and then you've got to replace that person and retrain them and lost time, productivity, wages. You see all that. So it was much less expensive expensive to pay the $400. And boy, if that didn't build what I call my dream team staff. And then again, we started training them with the sales stars training system. And believe it or not, in a seasonal business, I mentioned that I was only open four months a year in a seasonal business. I got 96% retention rate. 96% of my people over time came back year after year after year. Now, I ran these restaurants for 20 years, and I had people working for me for 15 years, 17 years, 19 years, 18 years. They just, and that was the dream team. They were all choreographed. They all delivered great service. There was a chemistry. They felt like family, not employees. That's what a dream team is all about.
Okay. We taught them to serve and sell. We recognized and rewarded them. You know, I always encouraged people to use their unique personality because everyone has a unique personality. I believe it or not, you know, the kids were so important. I don't need to tell you this, but oftentimes kids make the decision where the family goes out to eat. And let's face it, kids want to go to the fun place. They want to go where people treat them like an equal, where they're important, right? So we trained our staff to take care of the kids. We actually had, you know, people that would approach tables and and juggle or do card tricks or tell jokes. I mean, it was icebreaker for the kids. And of course, we served them first. We treated them like VIPs and that built our business as well. So we started this restaurant and right from the get-go, the buzz kicked in. We had lines out the door, right? Because we were doing things different. We were doing things better. We were offering a very unique food product that was all about quality. We were training our staff in superior service and salesmanship. And we had ambiance. Those three things, food, service, and ambiance were our magic dust, the formula for success in that first restaurant. It was amazing, okay? Then we had power with our suppliers. We had such a busy place that suddenly all the suppliers took notice and they're knocking on your door, you know, uninvited, of course. And that gave us leverage with our suppliers. And we were able to negotiate really strong deals. And we were able to negotiate sponsorships and special rewards and prizes. I could tell you about this. I will actually. So guys, take it from me. From one operator to another, I'll tell it to you straight. Nobody likes greasy pots and pans. And I want to keep my dish guys happy. So we upgraded to Dawn Professional Pot and Pan. Dawn Professional cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink than our old soap, the so-called leading competitor. Less dish soap means fewer sink changeovers and a happier dish crew. Try Dawn Professional in your place. It's clean. Upgraded. I also learned the importance of having a budget. Because we opened that, we opened the doors to that first restaurant and we had a booming ski season. Like it snowed and it snowed and it snowed and we had lines out the door and it was amazing. And now suddenly it's April and the snow is melting and the customers are disappearing. And now we're in this small town and we had no idea if the locals were going to support us. We had no idea if there were enough locals to give us a steady business to operate in the summer. So we made the mistake of opening up. We closed for a couple of weeks for what they call mud season. And then like June 1st or so, the beginning of the start of summer, we reopened. And even though we had made money right out of the starting gate that very first winter, we proceeded to burn through cash all summer, serving five people a night for dinner, 10 people sometimes. And it was really depressing. And the staff were standing around, you know, wondering if customers were going to come through the door. No one's making any money and the tips are really low. And oh, it was oh, it was just a nightmare. So we went through that summer. We lost just about every dollar we made in profit that winter. And I had a budget that I put together. We had to go back to the bank. We had to borrow some more money. We had credit cards. You know, we we got a line of credit. It's like whatever you can do to survive just to get to the next season. Fortunately, we were able to do that. The next season was another strong winter. The same thing happened. Lines out the door, busy, busy. I decided to obviously learn how to make tons of money, but maximize profit is the most important thing, cost controls and maximizing profit. So I put systems in place. I knew what my daily break even was. I knew what it cost me to open the doors every single day. And if there was a slow day, I came up with special promotions that were going to drive business on those slower days. We came up with Tuesday, $5 pizza night, you know, and we did this for years and we had an alcohol license. You know, we could serve 
beer and wine and spirits. And we found out that it became a really social thing. And yes, we were offering two topping, you know, $5, 12-inch personal pizzas, which became really popular. And we packed the place, but we sold lots of alcohol. So even though I was making a little money, call it a loss leader, on the pizza, I was making lots of money on the alcohol. And then we brought in acoustic musicians that kept people entertained, and they stayed there for hours, and they ate the pizza, and they drank the drinks, and it became this huge buzz. So we built our Tuesday night, which traditionally was the slowest night of the week, into one of the busiest. It was comparable to like a Friday night. It was awesome. So just know that there are things you can do. You have to be creative and resourceful in this business. So we did that, okay? So after two years of running this tiny little place on the wrong side of the railroad tracks, I was still working at the ski resort, okay? I was working 45 hours a week, crazy hours at the resort, and then every single night I'd get out at 5.30 or 6 o'clock, I'd run down to the restaurant, and I'd close the place till like 11 o'clock at night and all that kind of stuff. It was crazy hours for like two years. But on my way to the ski resort every day, I passed a piece of property that was for sale, and this time it was 18 acres of land. And the sale price when I first looked at it was $500,000, and granted, that was a lot of money back then. This was 1990 six or so, you might say. And the price kept coming down. I, I looked at this property for those two years that I was in business in this downtown location. And the price kept coming down because these people wanted to sell the land that owned it. And no one was taking the land. There was an old farmhouse on the site. It was a historic building in this town and whatnot. And I looked at it and I looked at it and I'm like, wow, it's got these amazing views of the ski resort behind it. I could envision my Swiss chalet coming to life. Remember, I wanted that million dollar loan to build this authentic Swiss chalet. So we went back to the banks and now we had a two year track record and we could prove to those bankers that, that were all doubting us in the beginning that we could actually do what we said that we could do. The business plan asked for the million dollar loan and this time we got the million dollar loan. So we bought the land. I actually got the 18 acres of land for two. $225,000. We built the building. It was a 6,000 square foot single story wooden, you know, post and beam wooden barn, big glass windows looking up at the mountain. And then I, you know, we opened the doors to this place that first winter and I watched cars after car after car drive by. I was standing in the window and it was so depressing. And I found out that people are creatures of habit. If they're used to going to a certain place, they're always going to go to that place. And you have to give them lots of reasons to to, to find you, to discover you. And people are reluctant to try something new. So for every 20 or 30 cars that drove by that window, one car would pull into my parking lot, and then I'd watch another 20 or 30 cars go by, and then another car would come into the parking lot. So we had to get really creative with marketing hooks. We had to come up with all kinds of ideas that were going to drive business, and we did that. You know, we sat down with our staff and we brainstormed all these ideas and we tried, you know, a DJ booth and, and doing live music at that time. And we tried lots of things and some things worked and some things didn't, but you had to be relentless. You had to be creative and resourceful and keep trying and keep experimenting. That's what this business is all about. Never giving up. So we opened this new place, okay, and I'm watching all the cars drive by and it was a disaster because in January there was a major ice storm, okay, and the power lines were down and there was no power for three weeks and all the trees were sagging and there was lots of repair crews out and literally the season just almost came to an end just as it had started and we, the weathermen on TV were saying, yep, huge ice storm in Maine, we'll see you this summer on the coast for lobster and it was devastating and I watched our cash flow just 
just dwindle, dwindle, dwindle. And even though we had paid off the line of credit at the place downtown, we paid off the credit cards. I told you we had to borrow all this money. We had to do it again. We had to take out all these personal credit cards and throw all this stuff and just try to survive. And we made it through somehow. But we were relentless. It was all about marketing. It was all about service. It was about building affinity to a core group of customers and bringing them back again and again. And the key to that was... The Mug Club. This is a t-shirt from my old place, the Matterhorn Ski Bar, and this was a Mug Club t-shirt. And we created this club, and it was a, an affinity club. It was based on a membership where people would pay a, 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 you know, an annual fee to belong to the club, and then they would get their own personal mug. And instead of offering them 16-ounce pints that we would sell to every other customer, it was a 20-ounce ceramic mug that they could customize. They could put stickers all over it. They had numbers on the bottom with their nicknames or their name on the bottom. And we sold 50, and then we sold 100, and then 200, and then 400, and this thing gained momentum. And the reason why was it became this exclusive thing where we offered all this value added, this amazing service. We had live music now with rock bands on weekends, and instead of charging cover charges to the Mug Club members, they could get in absolutely free and save $10, $15, even $20 on New Year's Eve and get VIP service where our security team out front would just literally open the velvet rope and let these people pass right in. And it became this club where everybody knew each other. And the VIP service blows me away to this day that my bartenders literally got to know their mug club members. And even though there were hundreds of people that belonged to this club, people would walk through the door and we had this big bell behind the bar that was another hook. Every time a mug club member walked through the door, they were recognized. The bell would go bing, bing, bing. And the bartenders knew exactly what that person's favorite beer was, and they would literally pull their mug, pour their favorite beer, and that beer was ready for that person when they made it to the bar. And if they were in the crowd and there was a big crowd there, you know, it was pretty amazing. Also, in that <laughs> the mugs would actually get passed through the crowd to the person. It was extraordinary service, and that built the buzz and that built the club and that was free and clear cash flow at the end when i sold my restaurant in 2014 my flagship property had 1200 people that paid $50 a year to belong and that was over $50,000 in free and clear cash flow it was amazing but it wasn't just about the cash flow what could you do with an extra 5000 10000 you can maybe hire a manager you can give incentives to your staff you could do capital improvement projects in your restaurant we did all these things with that money but the key was the fact that people came in more often because when they belonged to the mug club instead of coming in twice a month you know, now they're coming in two and three times a week spending more money. So we came up with recognition and rewards programs. We had a point of sale system and mag stripe cards that could be programmed. And every mug club member got one of these mag stripe cards. And every time they came in, they'd hand it to a bartender or a server whenever they bought anything. And it would automatically track their spending. And we would we rewarded the biggest spenders at the end of the season, but we could also program those cards to randomly award prizes to our best customers and to these mug club members. So if that didn't kick in the buzz, so people loved it and they spent tons of money, but the best of all was there was absolutely no cost to me because a, a sponsor put their logos on the mugs and we gave them recognition in the place. And every year we would get new mugs and new t-shirts and all this value-added stuff that cost me nothing. You know, we just collected the cash and served the customers. That was pretty amazing. 
So that's what affinity is all about, okay? We also brought in games. You know, there are companies out there that'll bring in pool tables and video games and pinball machines and all this kind of stuff. And if you've got any extra space, it's another profit center. It's cash. If you've got a family restaurant, parents just want to enjoy their dinner and have the kids occupied. And they'll give the kids $20 bills to go to the change machine and just go play, you know, games. The crane games that you know, have the plush stuffed animals in them or the candy cranes and all that kind of stuff. We had a whole area dedicated just for the kids. And that brought in thousands of dollars a month in extra cash. And I didn't own the games and I didn't service them because the company came in, brought the games, the change machine, and they just took 50% of the revenue. And I got the other 50% just for giving them the real estate. So that's another profit center. Believe it or not, you cannot have too many profit centers in your restaurant. We also started building a brand, you know, where name recognition, of course, Matterhorn Ski Bar. We had logo stickers. We passed out these free stickers and we had contests, you know, for the mug club members, for the regular customers. If you bought our t-shirt and if you took an interesting picture somewhere in the world, you might win an amazing prize. And we encouraged people to take five by 10. You know, today it's a digital world. You know, people take digital camera photos on their phones. But back then, it was all about regular cameras, taking 5 by 10 submitting them. I would buy all these frames at Walmart, and we would literally plaster the restaurant with all these interesting photos all over the world of people wearing our shirts, our t-shirts, our hats, all that kind of stuff. And what did that do? That sold tons of merchandise. You know, we probably sold 20,000 bucks in t-shirts, in a month's time. It was unbelievable. But we had contests. There was always something exciting going on. So again, more affinity, more marketing hooks. You can't have too many hooks. Um, we had a prize closet. Whenever I hired a new staff person and I recognized them doing something right, we had recognition rewards. Two things very popular and very interesting that were, that were really great. Um, the prize closet. I was at one of my suppliers one day and I noticed there was in the conference room, there was all this merchandise. There was sporting goods and electronics and wearables and clothes and all this stuff. And I said, what's all that? And they're like, yeah, you know, we're just cleaning out the warehouse. And this was left over from last year. We had all these promotions, but we didn't give all the stuff away and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wow, you know, I spend a lot of money with you every year. Is there any way that we could have any of that for incentives for our employees? Next thing you know, the next day, their truck shows up with a food delivery and, and they give us all this stuff, right? The prizes. So we loaded this closet with all this stuff. And whenever we had a new employee or even a, a recognized great employee that did something amazing, you know, made a difference, helped a customer, whatever it was. You know, it, it was especially gratifying to me with a new employee because they had no idea. All of a sudden I said, hey, you know, you're doing a great job. I noticed what you just did was awesome. That's exactly what we like to see here. Thanks for working here. Thanks for doing this. Hey, come with me for a second. And they'd walk down the hall with me and I'd open the doors and they'd walk in and I'd say, see anything you like? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, see something you like? It's yours. Take it. I really appreciate what you just did. And suddenly they had a, a pair of skis or golf clubs or a radio or, you know, boom box, uh, I iPad. We had all this stuff to just give away. And boy, if that didn't raise morale in the restaurant, everybody talked about that. That was the first program. The next program was called Difference Dollars. Every week I would recognize two people for going above and beyond the normal scope of their job. And I could recommend them or a manager could recognize somebody or even a fellow employee could nominate one of their coworkers that did something great. It didn't matter who, you know, found someone that did something amazing, but it would be brought to my attention. 
And every, every week on a Friday and a Saturday when all my employees were working, just before we opened the doors for dinner service, I'd call everyone working that night into the kitchen and I'd say, hey, and this week's winner, the difference dollars is Sally. And this is what Sally did that made a difference. And I would give her a can of Red Bull and a $20 bill and say, Sally, amazing job. Thanks for making a difference. So glad you work here. Everyone would clap, go back to their jobs. And then I'd go into my office and I'd type up on a, you know, on a regular sheet of paper exactly what that difference was. And I mentioned that the frames from Walmart, well, the whole back of house was covered with these difference dollar stories in these frames, the employee area, the back hallway, the kitchen, everywhere. And whenever a new employee was hired, you couldn't help notice all these signs and you'd see them walking down the hall reading this sign and reading that sign. It just sent a message of how we ran our business and how we wanted the staff to perform and how we appreciated the staff and how we recognized and rewarded them. And that raised the morale. Okay, really simple stuff. So these are just some of the ideas on how we built our business in the early days, the prize closet, the difference dollars. And then we wanted to build our business outside the four walls of our restaurant. I was a big believer in return on investment, and I knew that I wasn't going to spend money on traditional advertising, you know, radio, print, TV, all that stuff where you really can't track the ROI, you know, unless every customer walks in the door and says, hey, Roger, you know, I came into your restaurant today because I heard the commercial on the radio. That never happens. You'll never know if you spend thousands of dollars if you're going to get any return on that investment. So instead, we did things like strategic alliances. We went out into the community within a five-mile radius and we built relationships with other businesses that would drive our business. I could teach you how to do this. I learned how to dial in my menu profits. You know, I'm a consultant now and I work with lots of restaurants. And early on, I recognized the fact that I wanted every single item on my menu in each category to contribute a very similar profit, okay? So I wanted all the appetizers to be very similar in profitability. I wanted all the entrees to be very similar to each other in each category in profit. And now as a consultant, the very first thing I do is I ask my clients, I go, so what are your most popular items? They all know this. Oh, this flies out of the kitchen. Oh, the customers would kill me if I pulled this off the menu. That, that's super popular. This is super popular. And then I say, what are your most profitable items? And suddenly you see the gears kind of grind to a halt and they kind of scratch their head and they got to think about it and they can't really answer that question. We do a deep dive into their menu and I start tearing things apart. And if they have costed out their menu, maybe it was a long time ago, we redo the process. If they've got something up to date, they're not using the data. And I look at, you know, the product mix report and I see the volume of sales compared to the profits and I dial in this whole thing and I show them, you're losing lots of money because instead of pennies, of a profit spread difference in each category, you're losing dollars. Every time you sell this appetizer versus that one, you just lost a $3 potential profit. On the entree side, it's $7, $10, $12, even more, depending on the price point of the restaurant. Believe me, you want the spread, the profit difference in each category to be pennies, not dollars. And 90% of the restaurants I work with have not done this. Nothing is more important, believe me, than that exercise. So dialing in menu profit is really, really important. I mentioned the daily break-even. That's super important. You know, after a while, we started to get national magazine press for our restaurants. We did things differently. The service was extraordinary. The online reviews were through the roof. People found us. We were written up in the Boston Globe, the New York Times, Yankee Magazine, Down East Magazine, all these magazines, skiing magazines specifically. 
all that kind of stuff just really found us because of the things we did. And then we went out and we started another concept in the town, you know, and now suddenly I was managing two places. So incentives for managers became really important and giving them a key set of key results and bonusable results and paying them extra for building the business really served us well. And then in 2014, my wife just wanted to change our lives, 360 degrees. And she said, you know what? You've been running these restaurants for 20 years. It's time for us to do something different. The kids are still small. Let's sell our businesses. Let's sell our house. And let's just move across the country and focus on building this company called Restaurant Rockstars. So I ended up authoring two books. We created all these online training systems for restaurants based on my 20 years of experience, the systems, the cost controls, and the profit maximization being one foundation. I call them the foundational fundamentals. There are three super important things you need to focus in on in your restaurant to be super successful. One, cost controls and maximizing profit. That's a system. Two, staff development, training, recognition, and rewards. That's a system. And then the third one, marketing firepower and building affinity is another system. You know, people want to go where everyone knows their name. You know, it's that cheers formula. I teach people how to do this and we've got online systems that do them. Okay. So after all these years of being in business, we sold our restaurants. We moved across the country. We got an RV. We moved to Sun Valley, Idaho, and we lived there for four years while we built Restaurant Rockstars. So now I'm coaching and consulting one-on-one -on -one to restaurants. We have a series of these training systems that I mentioned earlier available at restaurantrockstars.com. I've authored two books, and I'm also serving on the board of directors for Hospitality Maine, our state restaurant and lodging association, which is really gratifying to me. You know, I learned a long time ago that it's really all about giving back. The restaurant industry has been very good to me, and now I just like to talk shop with operators, help them through their pain points and challenges, and I also offer a 30-minute consultation. No obligation, of course. If you've got something that keeps you up at night that uh, you'd like to talk about or possibly just ask me a question, why not reach out to me, Roger, R-O-G-E-R, at restaurantrockstars.com, and we'll set up a time to chat. You know, it's not just about surviving COVID, although that has been super important. If you've hung on this um, time so far through the goodness of the PPP programs and now the new Restaurant Revitalization Act, if you're still there and if all this money has helped you to survive, now it's about putting systems in place in your restaurant to really succeed and push past the boundaries of before, okay? to build an unstoppable brand, not just run a restaurant, but to build a brand, to build your dream team staff, and to really know at a moment's glance what your critical financials numbers are so you can really crush it. That's my hope for you. So it's been my pleasure just giving you this trip down memory lane, you know, Roger's reflections of owning restaurants and starting restaurants. And where am I at now? Well, I didn't tell you this, but pre-pandemic, I bought another restaurant. So in July of 2019, I jumped back in and pretty quickly, you know, we had to renovate the entire restaurant and start investing in and improving the property. And then COVID hit. And then I was suddenly in your shoes. I had all the same challenges. My restaurant came to a screeching halt. We closed for two months. Government restrictions, of course. Business dropped 80%. 
And then we pivoted that restaurant and we turned it into an entirely different concept. So more on that later. I'll be doing another installment talking about the purchase of this restaurant as well as what my exit strategy is for the future. So I hope you've enjoyed this. Hopefully uh, you found it helpful with lots of key learnings and nuggets of information. So thanks for listening as always, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks guys for staying with us. You know, I belong to a lot of restaurant owner, manager, GM type groups on LinkedIn and Facebook, and I'm always listening and reading and hearing what other people's stories are. And, you know, the challenges that we face in this business, I've been in a lot of different businesses, but I absolutely believe this is the most challenging business that I've ever seen, that I've ever been involved in. And I know you can say the same thing because you're in the trenches and going through this COVID pandemic, of course, if you're still hanging on, again, kudos to you. It's been a rough ride and a rough journey. But, uh, you know, the bright light is definitely ahead and things are looking up. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and you learned a little bit about, um, you know, what I did that made me super successful. And hopefully there were some nuggets of information that help you. Once again, I know I just mentioned this in the episode, but I do really appreciate people reaching out. I love talking to people, talking shop with operators. And if I can help you with any challenges you're going through, again, reach out to me, Roger, R-O-G-E-R at restaurantrockstars.com. We appreciate our audience. We appreciate all the positive reviews you've been getting. So if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes so others can uh, find us. Thanks again to Dawn Professional Dish Liquid for sponsoring this episode. And once again, see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.